Willkommen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we will be discussing Hairspray. doing welcome back oh yes we're back from our break we're here we're in the new year 2020 baby yes i'm here with patty and benny of course we are all glowing from the break but at the same time we are sweating bullets because these first few days have been surreal right in a way that is more more surprising than you would think you see the joke online uh, you know it's only been a few days why is everything so crazy all of the time. Why? Why? And I don't say that lightly. I know it seems as if I'm being casual, flippant, but it is quite disturbing to be living in these times of ours, isn't it? Oh, when has it ever been a time in which you feel safe? <laughs> That's why we make this podcast. We have to we have to invest in projects like these because if we didn't have outlets, if we didn't have something to provide us some level of comfort in these times, I wouldn't even describe this show as an escape. I would describe it as a break because you can't really escape from the crazy times in which you live. Huh? Every generation knows that. And every generation has turned to media for a break, yeah? The newspaper, a novel, a hardcover novel, whatever happened to books? Whatever happened to real books? Now it's podcasts, right? That's the cool thing to do. We're all cool. You're cool for listening. So thank you for coming back for this, the latest episode of The Musical Man. Now I want to start off this episode by referencing, acknowledging, honoring the passing of Jerry Herman. Jerry Herman passed away on December 26th, 2019. He is I mean, what is there to say about Jerry Herman? I cannot properly give a eulogy for Jerry Herman. He's one of the biggest icons in the world of musical theater composers. Here is here's his complete list of Broadway shows. This isn't really complete because I'm leaving out the reviews off-Broadway work, but here's just a... So <laughs> what I'll just say is, of course, asterisk after the word complete. But these are his Broadway credits. So, from A to Z in 1960, Milk and Honey, 1961, Hello, Dolly, 1964, Mame, 1966, Dear World, 1969. I mean, really them out there in the 60s, I should say. Mac and Mabel, 1974, The Grand Tour, 1979, and he retired after the premiere of La Cage aux Faux in 1983. He is the only composer slash lyricist to have three productions running simultaneously on Broadway. Those would be Hello, Dolly, Mame, and Dear World. He was also the first of two composers to have three musicals run for more than 1,500 performances, those shows being Hello Dolly, Mame, and La Cage aux Folles. 
The second composer to earn that distinction, by the way, was Stephen Schwartz. I realized late on Christmas Eve that I've never seen the 1996 television movie musical Mrs. Santa Claus, which features songs by Jerry Herman and stars his longtime collaborator Angela Lansbury. I gotta track that down. So yes, we acknowledge that. Rest in peace, rest in power, Mr. Herman. And now we move on to the second part of our opening segment. Chris was listening to our episode on The Wedding Singer recently, and there is a point, if you'll recall, in that episode where we play a clip from the song Someday, and it was as if a light bulb appeared over Chris's head, and he immediately drew a comparison between the sound of Someday to the sound of a Build-A-Bear workshop theme song, some sort of, like, anthem for the Build-A-Bear workshop corporation, the brand, and he tracked it down on YouTube, so I want to play, we're going to go back in time, so we're going to hear that Someday clip again, and then we're going to transition right into this theme song for the Build-A-Bear workshop, which is very disturbing. Very strange. It's, if it doesn't send a chill up your spine, I don't know what will. You have a spine of steel. I'll say that to you. So, Patty, Benny, can we get those two clips back to back? Someday, build a bear theme song. Let's go now. She turns around and she meets his gaze. The lights are dim. There's a smoky haze. They share a smile and a secret way. It's a moment built to say. When 
he finally found that song on YouTube, I thought, I have to have this in the show immediately. Chris, send me a link. I gotta go. I gotta download this immediately. I don't have time to think about this. It's it's inevitable. It's my destiny to put this in the show. And now we have, and so we can move on to the final part of our opening segment, which is even briefer than the first two, if you can imagine it. And it's my review of the, uh, not the first season. I think this is sometimes advertised as the first season of Fosse Vernon. It's not, no, it's a, it's a mini-series. It was a limited TV event. But here's my review. Very good, huh? Fosse Vernon, who knew? Beyond all of the people who watched it when it was aired on a weekly basis. But I just got around to it. I rented the season through the library. Support your local library. If people tell you that it's weird that you support your local library and that you should pay for things all the time, why don't you just tell them to eat your ass? Why don't you... Why don't you tell your closest relatives to get on all fours, doggy style, golden retriever style, unhinge their fucking jaw, and munch away at your fucking excess? Whatever exits the back end of me, that's going into your mouth, Grandma. Stop looking at me like I'm weird for going to the library. But yes, Fosse Vernon, very good. Eat ass, Grandma. Let's get some show facts regarding this week's subject, Hairspray, shall we? Show me the show facts. Hairspray was the 2003 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on August 15th, 2002 at the Neil Simon Theater and ran for 2,642 performances. It is currently the 22nd longest-running Broadway show of all time, according to Wikipedia, sitting snugly between My Fair Lady at number 21, 2,717 performances, and Mary Poppins at number 23, 2,619 performances. Now, I've been slipping when it comes to silence these longest-running show designations, and I apologize. I apologize to Dreamgirls specifically for this lapse. For the record, Dreamgirls is the 61st longest-running Broadway show with 1,521 performances, which places it between the 2001 revival of 42nd Street at number 60, 1,524 performances, and MAME at Jerry Herman. There we go. MAME at number 62, 1,508 performances. The Book of Hairspray was written by Mark O'Donnell and Thomas Meehan, based on the 1988 film written and directed by John Waters. The music was written by Mark Shaman. The lyrics were by Scott Whitman and Mark Shaman. The director, Jack O'Brien. The musical director, Lon Hoyt. The choreographer, Jerry Mitchell. The scenic design, David Rockwell. The lighting design, Kenneth Posner. Sound design, Steve C. Kennedy. Costume design, William Ivy Long. To review all of the positions we normally cite on this podcast, all of those positions were filled by white men when it came to Hairspray. I dug a little deeper and confirmed that the music orchestrator, Harold Wheeler, is an artist of color, but beyond that, every creative position on the production side was filled by a white person, and almost none were filled by women. In general, and this is an obvious statement to make, and I, I feel like I've made this statement before, many more artists, right, and professionals who are of color should be working on Broadway-level productions. Recognizing the lack of representation again and again on Broadway is a dismal experience, and it's especially galling in the case of Hairspray, a show that takes so much pride in celebrating inclusion, right? You can't pay lip service to the idea that segregation is evil and collaboration is beautiful when 99% of the people in your room are white. But this isn't the only criticism I have when it comes to Hairspray and how it handles race, so we'll put a pin in that for now. 
wow, ah, shocker, a Broadway musical that doesn't necessarily know how to approach race in the best way. Not that I know how to do it in the best way. I just, you know, this is just me talking. This is a white gay man talking. It's all being filtered through my brain, which has its own limits, its own blind spots, trying my best every day to learn, listen, figure out how I can sort of rewire my brain so that it's, you know, better, just better. We need to learn so that we may become better, right? Let's talk about the original Broadway cast, shall we? Let's start with Harvey Firestein. Let's talk about Marissa Jarrett Winokur. Winokur, who met with the composers and was cast very early on in the role of Tracy Turnblad, with the understanding that she could be replaced at any time, which is maybe the most it's-just-showbiz thing I've heard in a while. Long story short, she was cast before they held any sort of formal auditions, so they essentially told her, yeah, you have the part, I guess, but if we do decide to hold auditions, or if someone else comes along that we like better, we're just gonna boot your ass out of the show. So that's the context that I really think that we need there. So Winokur underwent a secret hysterectomy when she was diagnosed with cervical cancer. Now I say secret because she didn't tell anyone involved with hairspray, assuming it would lead to her being fired. That's pretty fucked up, mainly because she was probably right to fear for her job. Remember, you're only a value to society if you're healthy. Weakness is a liability, so recover on Mondays when we're dark. Let's round out the rest of this cast, shall we? Laura Bell Bundy, Carrie Butler, Mary Bond Davis, Linda Hart, Dick Latessa, Matthew Morrison, Corey Reynolds, Clark Thorell, and Danelle Eugenia Wilson. Tony Nods. So let's talk about the awards that the show won. Let's start there. That's where we usually start, I believe. It won Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, Mark O'Donnell and Thomas Meehan, Best Original Score, Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman, Best Actor in a Musical, Harvey Firestein, Best Actress in a Musical, Marissa Jarrett Winokur, Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Dick Latessa, Best Costume Design, William Ivy Long, and Best Direction of a Musical, Jack O'Brien, and it was additionally nominated for Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Corey Reynolds, Best Scenic Design, David Rockwell, Best Lighting Design, Kenneth Posner, Best Choreography, Jerry Mitchell, and Best Orchestrations, Harold Wheeler. There's Harold Wheeler. There he is. So in total, 13 nominations and seven awards at the end of the day. Let's talk about the plot. June 1962, Baltimore. The bum is getting blotto on his barroom stool. The flasher who lives next door is casually assaulting his neighbors. And rats are taking to the streets en masse. Eee! This is the world Tracy Turnblad wakes up to every single morning, and she wouldn't have it any other way. Sure, she may not be the queen bee at school. Sure, she gets picked on for her weight and enormous hairdo. Sure, her mother, Edna, is an overprotective agoraphobe and more than a bit of a drag. But Tracy has a best friend, Penny, and their love for each other can weather any storm. And why complain when you can watch the Corny Collins Show, Baltimore's premier program for teens who love to dance? Tracy's biggest dream is to one day appear on the show, and she gets her chance when one of the lead dancers takes a mysterious nine-month break. Edna, fearing her daughter will only be ridiculed for her size, forbids Tracy from auditioning, but Tracy's father, Wilbur, gives our protagonist permission to reach for the stars. The audition does not go well. Everything is fine at first, with Tracy busting out choice moves that manage to impress a few of her classmates. She even runs into to the show's resident heartthrob, Link Larkin. Literally, she runs into him. 
So <laughs> there you go. But prospects go south when the owner of the station, Velma Von Tussel, learns that Tracy is for racial integration. The Corny Collins show has, for some years now, relegated its black dancers to a once-a-month event known as Negro Day, and Velma is not interested in hiring anyone who would see her program turn into a melting pot. She's also not a fan of Tracy's weight, and is quite obviously concerned with keeping her own daughter, Amber, in the spotlight. So, you know, Velma's got a few biases at play here. Tracy is rejected alongside little Inez, a young black girl who had hoped to become a lead dancer as well. Not long after, Tracy finds herself in detention as a result of her incredibly tall hair, and it's here that she meets Seaweed, who is little Inez's older brother and a wildly talented dancer in his own right. Seaweed shows Tracy some new moves, which she goes on to demonstrate at a school dance. Corny Collins, who happens to be at this school dance, hires our protagonist on the spot. I should say, I didn't write this down, but it's not like Corny Collins is just at the dance creeping on minors. He's, I believe, he is scouting for the show on his own time, and he hires Tracy based on her dance skills. Tracy's subsequent appearances on the show lead to instant popularity in the community, a fact that infuriates Velma and Amber. A gentleman named Mr. Pinky expresses interest in having Tracy endorse his plus-sized dress shop. Tracy uses this opportunity to get her mother out of their apartment, promising that the world has changed and they never again have to be ashamed of themselves. Edna is hesitant at first, but a fierce and fabulous makeover fills her with newfound confidence. She also agrees to become Tracy's agent, for the record. At school, a particularly nasty game of dodgeball results in Tracy getting a bonk to the noggin. Amber is not happy with how things have been going as of late, as we already mentioned, and so she uses dodgeball to release her frustrations. Take that, Tracy! A bonk to the noggin is the least you deserve! Amber is... not a nice person. Seaweed invites Penny, Tracy, and Link to a platter party at his mother's record store. Motormouth Maybell, Seaweed's mother, welcomes them with open arms, and when Edna and Wilbur show up, they are brought into the fold as well. The group comes to terms with the fact that Negro Day is no longer an acceptable handout from the Corny Collins show, and so they decide to stage a protest. Velma calls the police in order to break up the demonstration, and Act 1 ends with all of our heroes landing in jail. Well, all of our heroes except Link, who decided to skip out on the protest for the sake of his career. Act 2. Wilbur uses what little money the family has to bail our heroes out of jail, though Tracy is forced to remain in her cell due to the wicked machinations of Velma. Edna mourns for her daughter's future and begins to regress, fearing the world will never change for people who are viewed as different. Wilbur reassures her, stating that he'll always be by her side. Their passion for one another is instantly rekindled after years of dormancy. We watch as two daring rescues are pulled off simultaneously, with Link appearing to help Tracy bust out of prison, and Seaweed racing to save Penny from her racist, evangelical mother. Penny was specifically tied to the posts of her own bed, if that tells you anything about her mother. Everyone reconvenes at the record store, where Motormouth Maybell helps them devise a plan to integrate the Corny Collins show once and for all. Long story short, they crash the set during the program's annual Miss Hairspray competition, and when Tracy announces that the show is now and forevermore integrated in front of a live national studio audience, the crowd goes wild. Tracy is pardoned by the 
the governor and given a full college scholarship, Link is offered a record contract. Velma becomes the vice president of a beauty products line for women of color, much to her chagrin. I think I'm, I think I'm actually taking the phrase much to her chagrin directly from Wikipedia, so I apologize for just lifting, lifting that out. And Penny's mother comes to accept her daughter's interracial relationship. When all is said and done, even Amber and Velma can't help but join in on the celebration. All is well, love wins out, and we bring the curtain down as Tracy and Link share a kiss. Now, I think this would be as, as good a time as any to reference an article I found online. This is from May 30th, 2018. It's a post on the website Onstage Blog. And the headline of this article, this piece, is Should There Be All White Productions of Hairspray? And this piece was written by Chris Peterson. Chris Peterson writes, According to the licensing material from Music Theater International, there are no race restrictions on any of the characters in the show. That show being Hairspray. There is also specific material which does address the use of non-traditional casting for the roles. It reads, so this is a quote from Musical Theater International, and this is the body, the group that you would work through to pay for the rights to put on a production of Hairspray, just in case anyone might might be a little confused about that. So this is a quote from Music Theater International. Okay, great. Quote, the use of makeup to portray black characters in your production, e.g. blackface, is not permitted under this production contract. By signing below, you agree to inform the director of your production that such use of makeup is strictly prohibited. If your production of Hairspray features actors who are portraying characters whose race may be other than their own, you may elect, may, this is not a requirement, it says you may elect to include the below letter from the creators of Hairspray in your program. You are not permitted to edit the letter in any way. So now I'm going to quote this letter from the creative team behind Hairspray. So this is another quote within a quote within an article. I just want everybody to be able to track this. This is from the team behind Hairspray. And again, you don't have to include this letter in your program. You don't have to. As long as you're not doing blackface, that's really the only actual stipulation that's in this MTI contract. But if you want to, if you are casting people who are, let's say, not black, as black characters, you may elect to include this letter. Let's, let's read this letter. Why not? Yeah, let's get this letter. This, this should be interesting. Dear audience members, when we, the creators of Hairspray, first started licensing the show to high schools and community theaters, we were asked by some about using makeup in order for non-African Americans to portray the black characters in the show. Although we comprehend that not every community around the globe has the perfectly balanced makeup pardon the pun, of ethnicity. To cast Hairspray as written, we had to, of course, forbid any use of the coloring of anyone's face, even if done respectfully and subtly, for it is still, at the end of the day, a form of blackface, which is a chapter in the story of race in America that our show is obviously against. Yet, we also realized to deny an actor the chance to play a role due to the color of his or her skin 
would be its own form of racism, albeit a politically correct one, and the phrase politically correct is in quotes to continue. And so, if the production of Hairspray you are about to see tonight features folks whose skin color doesn't match the characters, not unlike how Edna has been traditionally played by a man, we ask that you use the timeless theatrical concept of, quote, suspension of disbelief, quote, and allow yourself to witness the story and not the racial background or gender of the actors. Our show is, after all, about not judging books by their covers. If the direction and the actors are good, and they had better be, you will still get the message loud and clear, and hopefully have a great time receiving it. Thank you. Signed, Mark Shaman, Scott Whitman, Mark O'Donnell, Thomas Meehan, and John Waters. I was inspired to do a bit of investigative journalism, so I reached out to Mark Shaman via Twitter to ask if this letter is still included in MTI materials and if he continues to support the idea of white actors playing black characters. Long story short, he sent me a direct message and is dealing with a lot right now. He went into specifics, but I will not share them here, Shaman implied we might be able to talk about this issue at some point in the future, but then he sent me the following message, quote, Sorry, I just unfollowed you. I just need to stay away from too many opinions. My skin got thin in my old age, but I do wish you well, quote, so I guess we'll never get a clear word on that. Oh well, and for the record, I didn't ask him to follow me, and I believe he chose to unfollow me when I was demonstrating a negative attitude toward the film adaptation of Hairspray, which we will get into, but here's, here's as far as I went with that opinion that got under his thin skin. I said that it wasn't good. <laughs> I don't use foul language, nasty, you know, pejoratives. I don't really, you know, go for the fucking throat when it comes to that movie. But apparently that proved to be one too many opinions for Mr. Mark Shaman. And again, I understand that he's going through a lot of, you know, personal issues right now. And I, I respect the fact that nobody owes me a conversation, right? But Mark Shaman is the only member of this team that's on Twitter. And I thought that I might be able to get some sort of an answer to this question, even if it was a yes or a no. But apparently, I, I was not able to do that. And by apparently, I mean, obviously, I was not able to do that. Let's talk about the sources that I pulled from this week. I listened to the 2002 original Broadway cast album. I watched the 2003 Tony Awards performance of You Can't Stop the Beat. We really need to get a high-quality version of that online pronto because the upload that exists looks like it's been filtered through a pair of drunk driving goggles. That's just... That's just my opinion. I'm sorry if, you, if your skin is so thin that you can't deal with all these opinions. Oh, so many opinions. You could just mute. You, I didn't ask you to follow. You can just mute, Mark. I know that you're old and you don't really seem to know how Twitter works, but... Okay, now now I am getting a little nasty. Oh boy, oh boy, John's getting nasty, raining in. <laughs> I watched the 2007 film adaptation, yes, and looking back, I remembered the movie, which I have only seen one other time, and that was in a theater setting. I remember the movie as being, how, you, how do you say it? Uh, not good. 
And when I rented it this week with money donated by our lovely patrons, that review was, how you say, reaffirmed. It's not good. Movie musicals truly live or die in the editing room. You have to combine dynamic camera work with sharp, well-timed cuts, and this movie is shot like a commercial for a supermarket. It's flat, none of the humor lands, the entire cast suffers. It's a sad little tugboat slowly sinking in a gray, soupy harbor. On the plus side, the movie does include a handful of original songs, one of which, The Lady's Choice, I enjoyed. It has a dorky, cool retro vibe to it, like we're getting the late 1950s filtered through Huey Lewis and the News. Can we get a little clip of that? Hey, little girl with the cash to burn. Well, I'm selling something you won't return. Patty and Benny. I also, of course, have seen the 2016 live TV adaptation of Hairspray. This was, I think, one of the more successful live musical broadcasts in that form's history, though my favorite has to be, still, still, I'm gonna go with it, The Wiz from 2015. Who didn't love that? You're crazy if you didn't love that. Stray thoughts regarding Hairspray Live, to get back on topic. Garrett Clayton, who plays Link in this production, is a reptilian twink who rose up from the bowels of the earth, and I find find him to be extremely disconcerting and compelling. He's basically a walking tube of poppers. Have you seen him in King Cobra? That's not a crazy movie at all. I mean, I haven't even seen it, so I can't speak to it. It's not like I was hyper-invested in his portrayal of porn star Brent Corrigan. No, me, never, me, never, no, no, me, never, no, no, never, never, no, me, never, no, me, never, no, no, never, me, no, no, never, no, no, me, never, no, 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 never, never, me, no, 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 me, never, no, no, never, 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 no, yes. Martin Short and Harvey Firestein are stellar in this live production, and they'll be receiving more praise from me throughout this episode, so don't you even worry about that. Harvey is the only person who should legally be allowed to play Edna Turnblad. All others should be thrown in prison for attempting to do so. Finally, how fucked up is it that Ricky Lake and Marissa Jarrett Winokur, who played Tracy Turnblad in the original John Waters film and on Broadway, respectively, they appear next to Maddie Balio in this live production as part of some sort of curated Tracy Turnblad Hall of Fame moment, but... Who isn't there? Who isn't there right next to them? But Nikki Blonsky, she is not there. Nikki Blonsky from the 2007 film is nowhere to be seen. Where is she? She's Nikki Blonsky from the movie Hairspray. Come on. Every gay man knows that meme. Did they make her an offer? Did she refuse? I gotta know. Why? Nikki, why? I know every step. I know every song.
Casey may not be a wholly three-dimensional character, but you wouldn't know it from hearing Marissa Jarrett Winokur's voice on this track. Her voice is like, metaphor time, a loaf of delicious, newly baked bread. It's crispy, it crinkles, it cracks a little bit, but in a wonderful way, it's infused with this deep, deep love that really took me by surprise this week. If Tracy is anything, she's a gal who wears her heart squarely on her sleeve, and the only way I know that is through Winokur's bracing performance. She sells the ever-living hell out of this opening, and when it's over, she's earned so much goodwill that I'm willing to walk with her through the gates of hell. Does Hairspray ever reach these same heights after a Good Morning Baltimore comes to a close? Yes, but only during the finale. Everything in between is Fifty Shades of, eh, this is pretty good. But if you get bored, at least you can rest assured knowing you can't stop the beat. We'll send you out on a high note. Can the wedding singer, for example, say that? No, it most certainly cannot. Nicest Kids in Town is better than, yeah, this is pretty good. I get a kick in the pants listening to it. I cannot tell a George Washington cherry tree lie. This is arguably the song with the most satirical bite, which isn't saying much. It's less bite than it is a light nip from an elderly cat that lost all of her teeth long ago before the war, before this land was brought to ruin. Hairspray's entire angle on racism is, racism is lame. That's it. That's all it has to say on that subject. Later, Motormouth Maybell will reference how her community, the black community, has, quote, lost so many on the way, quote, to equality. And that is a swing at resonance that does not land, let me tell you. Stop pretending you have something deeper to say, Hairspray. It's a weird look. You had no artists of color on the production side beyond your music orchestrator. Stop trying to act as if you know what's up. 
I only want to talk about The Legend of Miss Baltimore Crabs, the big Velma Von Tussle villain number, in which Kristen Chenoweth, who is amazing, I should have cited her when we first started talking about this live broadcast, but I just enjoy Kristen Chenoweth's decision to deliver the, li- the line, the lyric as The Legend of Miss Baltimore Crabs. Very funny. Moving on. They say it's a man's world, well that cannot be denied But what good's a man's world without a woman by his side And so I will wait until that moment you decide That I'm your man and you're my girl That I'm the sea and you're the pearl It takes two, baby, it takes two. It's hard for me to accept Matthew Morrison as Link. He was 25 when Hairspray premiered on Broadway, but I've watched a lot of Glee, and he will forever be Mr. Schuster to me. Sorry, Matthew, you got pigeonholed. Uh, It's retroactive, (laughs) what can I say? Mr. Shu, why are you on stage pretending you're in high school? We have nationals in two days, and Mercedes is running a song about tater tots. Come on! I'd like to play a clip of Zac Efron singing It Takes Two from the 2007 film, as it's a good example of how bad auto-tuning was back then. Can we get that clip? They say it's a man's world, well, that cannot be denied. But what good's a man's world without a woman by his side? sound like that. We knew Efron could sing as the host of Wildcats Everywhere, now available via Patreon. I find this to be disturbing. Disturbing! Hey, Tracy, hey, baby, look at me. I'm the cutest chick that you ever did see. Hey, Tracy, hey, baby, look at us. We're a team that's half as fabulous. I let go. Harvey Firestein is the best of us, and I would much rather have Edna Turnblad sitting at the center of this show over Tracy, because Tracy doesn't have an arc in Hairspray. I know we've kind of hinted at this already, but I'm just saying it. She doesn't. I adore Marissa Jarrett Winokur and what she does with that role, but let's be realistic. When the curtain rises, Tracy's already basically fully formed as a person, and the obstacles she encounters never leave much of a mark. She's perky, she's peppy, she's always moving forward, moving forward, no matter what. But Edna has a true blue arc. She grows, and Harvey brings so much tenderness to the part that I feel like jumping to my feet when Edna finally bursts from her shell during this song, Welcome to the 60s. Harvey, please be my mother. Hold me and tell me life will turn out all right, and do all of this while wearing a sundress. Yes! I'm glad Harvey was included as part of the live NBC cast alongside Martin Short. They're brilliant as a duo, and it's sublime casting all around. I will never stop saying that. 
but he should have been in the movie as well, right? Travolta is rigid and alien. John Travolta is a disaster. He makes drag look like a horror show as Edna. It's like he stepped out of a noxious English panto, and his eyes, they practically sweat with fear. Harvey knows that drag is both an exaggeration and a celebration of femininity. His Edna is fluid and eternally maternal and inspires devotion. Anyone who watches Harvey's Edna and claims they aren't a fan of that performance is lying to your face. Get those sociopaths out of your life. To review, Harvey Firestein, the undisputed MVP of Hairspray, serenade me with your crackling Yule Log baritone all the live long day, Mr. F. Oh, before we move on, before we move on, let's drop in a bit of Travolta's solo from the film version of Welcome to the 60s, shall we? Take it away, Patty and Benny. Tracy, hey baby, look at me. I'm the cutest chicky that you ever did see. Hey, Tracy, hey baby, look at us. Where is there a team that's half as fabulous? I let go, 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 the past now. Say hello to this red cup of brown. Yes, I know that the world's spinning fast now. Tell all the bridge to step aside. Your mama's working in the 60s. That is the sound of a man so deep in the closet, he's eating Turkish delight with fawns and white witches. The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe reference. 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 Imagine being invited places by colored people. It feels so hip. <laughs> well, I'm glad you feel that way, friends, because uh, not everybody does. I can't see my people look at me and only see the color of my face. Yes, they do. And then there's those who try to help God knows but have to always put me in my place. Now, I won't ask you to be colorblind, because if you pick the fruit, then girl, you should have fine. I'm the blacker the berry, the sweeter the juice. I can say it ain't so, darling, what's the use? The darker the chocolate, the richer the taste. And that's where it's at. Now, run and tell that. fun character to play. Does he have any jokes? Or is he simply the guy who bridges the gap between the white and black character sets? Hmm. I don't know. It seems like playing seaweed wouldn't be an especially rewarding experience. Well, it's a dance-heavy role, so there's that. And you get a solo. Solos are fun. Run and tell that. Solo. Solo. Yeah, solos are fun when they're rooted in emotion and reveal depth of character. Run and tell that is functional. It's a let's go over here now number. There's nothing insightful or, say it with me again, fun about it, but it sure does sound fun, doesn't it? Yeah, technically, yeah, but is it actually fun? Are you having fun or are you being told that you're having fun? I think we know the answer to that. P.S. The blacker the berry, the sweeter the juice, the darker the chocolate, the richer the taste is absolutely the sort of lyrics a white man would write for a black character and a black actor. Those do not hold up, let me tell you. It's weird. Because I'm big Blonde-ish. And if 
If you say I'm beautiful, I guess I'm beautiful. All right, I'll do it. Up this pace. And girls, I'll be right at your side if I can find some space. So you can hold your head up just as big as you please. You know they'll hear me knocking with the two of these. Now, tomorrow, side by side, we'll show the world what's right. Looks like I'm touching up my roots tonight. I'm not a fan of how Motormouth Maybell's grand entrance into the show morphs into another shotgun therapy session for Edna Turnblad. We did welcome to the 60s. It was a delight while it lasted, but there's no need to circle back and make Edna feel good about herself all over again. We've hit that beat. Edna's had her moment. The floor should now belong to who? Right, Motormouth, yes. Edna can be inspired by Motormouth, sure, but Motormouth should not have to directly coddle Edna. Black people do not exist to make white people feel better about themselves. You, my stomach's a little sour. I haven't had food in over an hour. Just had a pizza, six burgers, a mouse. There's no food left in the big dollhouse. Hey, matron, I have got to complain. Mira, mommy, don't I know you from first and main? Ah! Call my shysters, Lipschitz and Strauss. I gotta get strong from the big dollhouse. Big house! No fair! No food! No fun! Big house! And our fight had just begun, cause it's freedom's flame velmud like to douse, so we must break out of this big dollhouse. I listened to the OBC Hairspray album quite a bit while I was in college, so why do I feel like I have never heard of this track, The Big Dollhouse, until this week? Did I always skip over this track? Did someone burn an incomplete version of the album for me? I'm thinking that must have been what happened. The first decade of the 2000s. I mean, we didn't have Spotify. What? I gotta explain this again? In any case, The Big Dollhouse is semi-obnoxious and in no way forwards the plot of the show. It's merely a vehicle for tired jokes about prison. Don't drop the soap, hardy har 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 As well as Edna's weight, in case, you know, in case you missed the first 300 jokes about how she is a fat character. It's implied that Edna ate a mouse while wallowing in her jail cell? It also ends with Harvey dropping an out-of-left-field gypsy reference. For me! For me! And I'm here to say, don't make Harvey do that. Come on. Dumb. Dumb. It's dumb. It's no wonder the song gets cut from most school productions, as it kind of stinks and is totally disposable. If you can lift a number out of your show and there is literally no ripple effect, it should never have survived workshops and out-of-town tryouts, right? Shows like Hairspray live and die on their pace, so don't slow me down with this stuff, okay? All right, huh? Styles keep a-changing, the world's rearranging, but Edna, you're timeless to me. Hemlines are shorter, a beer cost a quarter, but time cannot take what comes free. You're like a stinky old cheese, babe, just getting riper with age. You're like a fatal disease, babe, and there's no cure, so let this fever rage. 
Some folks can't stand it, say time is a bandit, but I take the opposite view. Cause when I need a lift, time brings a gift, another day with you. A twist or a waltz, it's all the same schmaltz, with just a change in the scenery. You'll never be old hat, that's that, you're timeless to me. Keep the fading Castro's invading, but will be your timeless to me. Hairdos are higher, mine feels like barbed wire, but you say I'm chic as can be. You're like a rare vintage ripple, a vintage they'll never forget. The poor me, a teeny weeny triple. Can toast the fact we ain't dead yet. I can't stop eating your hairlines receding, and soon there'll be nothing at all. So you'll wear a wig while I roast a pig. Hey, pass the cherry toll. Glad the black brass, the choppy checkers on gas, but they all pass eventually. You'll never be passé, hooray, timeless to me. Oh, we're gonna dance with me, Ben. Ah, Wilbur. Ah, ooh, ooh, Oh, wow, look at those. Oh, look at me move. Look at that thrust. I haven't tried that in 14 years. Oh, my God. Oh, I got the bumper going down, baby. Oh, my, that's illegal in many states. We're taking a rare break from the OBC album because I wanted to make sure you heard from Martin Short and Harvey Firestein at some point, aka the hottest couple to ever grace any screen. There is no irony in that statement, by the way. They are perfect together. Martin Short, that manic little scarecrow bobblehead of a man, and Harvey Firestein, the gem who will one day feed me soup from a large spoon if I play my cards right. I've been meaning to ask, actually. Patty, uh, how are the cards being played these days? Are they being played right, more or less? Okay, I mean, let's get together after this. Patty and Benny, I'd like to get your thoughts, too, on this, Benny. Uh, but yes, this is the best version of your Timeless to me, no doubt about it. Edna and Wilbur love each other. They always have and always will. I want to be an old, bloated fool who's in love. Oh, let's take a stop at the Wiener stand. And I will be if I continue to play my cards, right? Chris, hello, my husband, yum, yum, yum. Remember how they got... Christopher Walken for the movie. He plays Wilbur in the movie. I'm a fan of Mr. Watkins, okay? All right. But that was brain-dead casting. That was someone saying, no, come on, he's a weird guy. He's a weirdo. He's weird. It's like if we got Nicolas Cage to do the part. Ooh, there's an idea. Let's get Nicolas Cage. Let's not. Living in the ghetto, blackies everywhere you go. Thought I'd love a girl with skin as white as winter snow. In my ivory tower, life was just a hostess snack. But now I tasted chocolate and I'm never going back. Cause without love, life is like a beat that you can't follow.
have been the perfect opportunity to give seaweed a... Oh, goodness gracious, this always happens to me. How do you say, what's the word, I'm always doing this bit. Uh, how do you say, what's the word, oh right, a joke. A joke. This is a funny song. Everybody's getting jokes. Except for seaweed. Isn't that weird? Isn't it interesting to note that? Notice how everyone in this song is getting jokes except seaweed. And he has to split his verse with Penny, whereas Link gets one all to himself. I, I can't not see these lapses, these missed opportunities. Without Love is a delightful song. I really do like it to pieces, but Seaweed deserved more and more, I say. And maybe we could do with a little less of Penny pointing to Seaweed and spouting variations on, you're black, your character is black, 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 blacky, black, black, black. Yes, Penny, we get it. Stop fetishizing Seaweed. Maybe let Seaweed be a person who can deliver a joke every once in a while. That might make him seem more fleshed out, more human. Speaking of seaweed, the show does take a moment to consider the weight of his interracial relationship with Penny, with Motormouth emphasizing that their future together will likely involve, quote, a whole lot of ugly, quote, or something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing just a little bit. It's literally one line that she has about the, the danger, the violence that would come with a relationship like this. There's potential, at least. In the 60s, that's something very obvious, but they reduce it all down to one line. And if you think this light jab at seriousness seems reductive and totally unearned, well, get a load of our next song, I Know Where I've Been. There's a road we've been traveling, lost so many on the way, but the riches. properly talk about I Know Where I've Been, we should first hear this quote from composer Mark Shaman, my Twitter buddy. Quote, this song was inspired by a scene late in the movie that takes place on the black side of town. It never dawned on us that a torrent of protest would follow us from almost everyone involved with the show. Quote, quote within a quote here, it's too sad, it's too preachy, it doesn't belong, Tracy should sing the 11 o'clock number, quote, now we're back to Mark Shaman, we simply didn't want our show to be yet another showbiz version of a civil rights story where the black characters are just background. And what could be more Tracy Turnblad-like than to give the 11 o'clock number to the black family at the heart of the struggle? Luckily, the audiences embraced this moment, which enriches the happy ending to follow, and it is our proudest achievement of the entire experience of writing Hairspray. Quote, there are so many angles of approach I could take when it comes to this quote that it's hard to know where to begin. 
let's start by saying I know where I've been is an aggressively okay, largely forgettable number. I talk about this in the AIDA episode of The Snub Club, now available via Patreon. Oh, I need to stop doing that. But white composers love writing songs of protest for characters of color. Unsurprisingly, those songs tend to wind up reading as pretty bland because these composers have no real ability to speak to the experiences of people of color. Huh? Yeah? It's a fool's errand, but they act like they're doing people a favor by writing them. Look, look at this song I wrote for a black woman. It's all about her struggle and the struggle of her community. Isn't that in and of itself worthy of praise? I've done something pretty great here. It in no way shocks me that Shaman and Whitman would have received criticism over this song, not because it's too sad, it's not, or too preachy, it's borderline apolitical, or doesn't belong, there's always room for heart in a comedy, but because it's trite and insulting. Hairspray is a pop art fable that reduces racism in the 1960s down to cartoon heroes and villains facing off via tidy, easily resolved, and this is important, non-violent, big emphasis there, non-violent battles. It's a goof, a light satire that goes down smooth, and I don't think shaman or women would object to these descriptors. They depend on the fact that Hairspray is largely antiseptic to ensure audiences, white audiences, aren't challenged to the point of alienation. But Hairspray also has to be presented as an achievement, even if it is just a minor achievement. It has to be seen as something that is brave and daring for even bringing up issues of race in the first place. Writing a pop art fable may curry the favor of the tourist crowd, but if you can earn the respect of easily impressed white liberal Tony voters, ah, you can dine out on that for years to come. Hence the inclusion of a song like I Know Where I've Been, a song that pushes a big black lady to the apron so she can save the show. Stop the show. Save the show. We've talked about this before. Hairspray did not invent the convention, and it won't be the last musical to employ it, but we must never stop calling it out. And if you're listening to these episodes in any sort of random order, as opposed to going straight through. When I say the phrase, a big black lady stops the show, that's a reference to a song from a Martin Short Broadway review that he did about himself, and I, there was an entire number dedicated to the idea that white composers often cast large black women to belt their faces off in order to add a bit of legitimacy and actual, you know, literal figurative color to their otherwise middling productions. So, and now that you have that context, I hope you understand where I'm coming from with that, because make no mistake, Make no mistake, the black characters in Hairspray are absolutely background players, despite what Mark Shaman would have you believe. This is a story about Tracy, a white girl who doesn't have a racist bone in her body and is simply reminded by those around her that yes, racism exists and is bad. Racism is lame. That's her story. That's her arc. And every black character flanks her during this weak sauce journey. It's quite telling how Mark Shaman describes Tracy as a character who, quote, gives quote, the 11 o'clock number. She gives the 11 o'clock number to a black family. In his mind, it's her number to give away. And if Motormouth Maybell's family is truly at the heart of this struggle, as Shaman would have us believe, why isn't the show about them in the first place? 
Because you know you can't really write for black characters, which is why you have their perspective directed at and filtered through a white audience surrogate like Tracy. You could have left it at that, but no, 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 no. You just couldn't resist the idea of black talent being used to lend a show, your show, a bit of much-desired authenticity, legitimacy, that color we've been talking about, figurative, literal... Writing I Know Where I've Been may have been Shaman's proudest achievement, quote-unquote, when it comes to hairspray, but here's the only thing you need to remember. I've been talking a lot, but here's the only thing I want to have stick with you, okay? He, Mark Shaman, along with everyone else on the creative team, is fine with white actors playing black characters. As a reminder, he's fine with a white woman playing Motormouth Maybell, for example. He and everyone else on this writing team, including John Waters, surprisingly, are perfectly fine making money off school and regional productions of Hairspray that cast white people in black roles and ask us to ignore that decision. They don't want us getting all worked up over that, eh? because when push comes to shove, when the pen is hovering just above the checkbook, the show isn't about race after all. According to that letter, the show isn't about race. It's about, quote, not judging books by their covers, right? Huh? That's what the real message of the show is, is it? You've already had your long Broadway run. I get it. You've already taken home your Tonys. I get it. So what is there to do now but ensure those checks keep coming in the mail? Sure, why not have a 14-year-old white boy play seaweed? He's not wearing blackface. He's just saying he's black for the sake of the production. It's fun. Lighten up in the face of this dark skin pantomime. I mean, come on. You have to admit, it's the same. It's the same as a man playing a woman. Race... Gender, it's all a societal construct. It's not important. Except that, uh, you know, it, 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 it is, it is, it is. Ah, oh, shit. And we're not saying race isn't important. No, 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 no. The significance of race is crucial to the plot of our show. Obviously, we feel race is important, but not, I guess, not that important? It's important when it's important for us to say it's important, and it's not important when it's important for us to believe it's not important. They're happy? You got us, PC police. Woo, lock us up. Woo, woo. I'll close out by saying I had a thought, and it was a stupid thought, but it kept persisting because I'm a moron, so why not share it? That thought, why didn't they just write a new libretto that didn't deal with race at all? But that's obviously insane and promotes erasure. No, Jonathan, they should not have written a version of Hairspray that's about... I, I mean, what would that script be about, Jonathan? Don't be a moron, me. I have to apologize. I can be pretty stupid on occasion. We should not have written two librettos for once on this island, and we shouldn't write a second for Hairspray. White people already have more than enough. <laughs> but I like the songs. I want to play. I want to play Motormouth. I want to sing Big Blonde and Beautiful. <laughs> Shut up. Tracy, I have a little something I'd like to add if you don't mind. You can't stop my happiness because I like the way I am. Just can't stop my knife and fork when I see a Christmas ham. So if you don't like the way I look, well, I just don't give a damn. Cause the world keeps spinning round and round. And my heart keeps on turning.
Can't Stop the Beat may be a perfect finale. Done. Full stop. It's one of the ultimate crowd pleasers, this fireworks factory explosion that blinds you from moment one and never dims over the course of five glorious minutes. I love it. I truly can't get enough of it. Whenever it rounds back for that damn chorus, there I am, chin tucked into my hands, ready to hear it all over again. In these moments, I am there for hairspray. Thrill me, tease me, send me to the moon, make me forget everything about you that doesn't work. I will ask you this, though. Why doesn't Seaweed get a joke in this song, okay? If not, now when, huh? The show's almost over, dummies. Now, normally this would be the point in the show where we get a word from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee, but instead we will be getting a special musical shout-out for our special brand-new Patreon donor, Shiante. So, Shiante, this is your musical shout-out. Take it away! Teenage Baltimore, this is Corny Collins coming to you live via XM Sirius XM Sirius XM Radio for this, the latest episode of the Corny Collins Show. Oh, that's right, everybody. You know, we've been on the air for about six decades now, and I'm coming to you as an octogenarian. I'm an old man. I'm a geezer. You know, I've seen a lot of changes over the years. Corny has changed. The show has changed. You know, in the 1960s, this show became racially integrated. I spearheaded that movement. I was woke in the 1960s. And in the 1980s, I put my foot down and I said, Ultra Clutch Hairspray is cancerous. It's filled with cancerous chemicals that are eating away at the brains of our children. It's making them stupid. And even worse, we were encouraging students back in the day to drop out of school so they could be on the Courtney Collins program. Oh, we had a lot to learn over the course of those six or seven to ten decades. But now we're here in the Lord's year 2020. And I'm here to tell you that the Corny Collins show is is cancer-free, baby. We don't smoke. We ain't got no hairspray. And our kids are educated. They're smart. Not only are they the nastiest kids in town, but they're the smartest kids in town. And I just want to say thank you so much to Shiante, our latest, our greatest, nastiest kid in town. Yeah! For being a Patreon donor to the Musical Man podcast. That's right. This, this show, the Corny Collins show on Sirius X. XM, XM, Serious Radio, bringing you the hottest, the greatest, the sexiest music that Teenage Baltimore has to offer. Is sponsored by The Musical Man, Stamps.com, Casper Radio, Bird Box. That's right, the Netflix film Bird Box, baby. If you haven't seen it, it's 2020. Get with it, get with it, get with it. Homer. Oh, but Shante, you're not the only nicest kid in town. No, we have to do a full roll call because that's how we roll on the Cordy Collins program. That's right. All right, kids, take it away for an official Cordy Collins show roll call. I'm Amber, Brad, Tammy, Fender, Brenda, Sketch, Shelly, IQ, Luann, Sasha, Marie, Mako, Pack Attack, Adam, Bird Box, Toaster, Secret Agent, Shade Spectre, Indigo, Madness, Mustache, Dynasty, Cha-Cha, Kosher, Kosher, Lillian, Nightmare, Pierre, Handcrank, Peebo, Peter, Ashford, Unreasonable Opinion, Cornflake, Butcher Block, Lumber, Sea Snake, King David, Doormat, Wishbone, Randolph, Lawrence, Rudolph, Honest 
Nostalgia, Jarvis, Uno, Dos Tres Cuatro, Cinco, Siete, Banjo, Charles, Menson, Not Manson, Henry, Krieger, Mac Tonight, Iceberg, Smallpox, Cavecoff, Ignoble, Jennifer Electron, Margarine, Marginal, O-Face, Rotini, Ugly Polo Queen, Vic, Trolla, Corey, Allen, Concrete Slab, Corey with a K, ZZ Bottom, Mimi, Douglas, The Beast with a Thousand Names, Ralph, Molly, Nicholas Jasper, Gold Bond, Breakfast Potatoes, Inchworm Nasty, Jackson, Freddy, Really Nasty, Dr. Uncle Egg McMuffin, Really, Really Nasty, Insidious, Hannibal, Qualified, Corny Collins, Clone, Number 6253, Joshua, Kenny, Teeny, Fuck That's Nasty, Shakespeare with a K, Alvin, Simon, Thelonious, Sace, and the guy behind the drugstore who works at the drugstore who talks to you when you park at the drugstore in the lot behind the drugstore. And I'm Link. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's the nicest kids in town. Thank you so much again, kids. And thank you, Shiante. This is your musical shout-out. Shout-out, 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 Homer. Don't. We'll see you on the flip side, Chiante. Uh, now for six straight hours of nothing but the hottest, craziest, most fucked up Baltimore teenage music you've ever heard in your life. That's right. We may have changed. The show is more responsible, but the music is so fucked up. It's going to blow your goddamn mind. Don't even listen to the lyrics. It'll make your ears bleed, especially if your parents out there. This music is for the kids. I don't listen to it. I know it would make my ears bleed. You can okay boomer my ass anytime time you want, but I'm always going to be here, baby, for the Connie Collins Show, yeah! Final thoughts regarding hairspray. I would call myself a fan of hairspray, but I would in no way describe myself as, I would in no way describe myself as being torn between my appreciation for the show and the resentment I feel toward its creative team. Just want to make that clear, because here's the thing. If the white man behind Hairspray had a shred of courage when it came to their convictions, they never would have signed off on the idea that casting white actors as black characters is acceptable. They would have said, no, that's ridiculous. This is a story about black and white people coming together, and if you can't present that story in good faith, you have no business staging it in the first place. We would rather lose out on a bit of money than condone a minstrel show. But they didn't say that, did they? No, they did not. And it prevents me from viewing Hairspray as little more than an ear-pleasing diversion that's a lot shadier and more regressive than its sugar-coated veneer would imply. And in case I didn't make this crystal clear, writing a role, a character that is written as a woman and is meant to be played by a man in drag. When you create a character like that, that is not, is not the same as telling white people they can run around pretending to be black. It never will be, so don't try that with me. Now, as a reminder, in 2003, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was Hairspray, and the additional nominees were Amore, A Year with Frog and Toad, and Moving Out. I'm feeling pretty disappointed right now, and while I do think Hairspray has the strongest score out of all of these options, I am more than prepared to take away its best musical medallion. That's right, we're doing it, but who should we give it to? You know what? We're going to give it to 
frog and toad. Give it to the amphibian gay couple. That makes me feel better. If the Hairspray team wasn't overseen by a bunch of dopes, this shakeup wouldn't be necessary. But here we are. And you know what? Upon further reflection, Hairspray may have a fantastic opener and closer, but almost everything else is filler. It's high-quality filler. I'm not saying it's on the level of the cheap padding we heard from the wedding singer, but none of it is essential. It's just a way to mark time as the evening progresses. Good morning, Baltimore. You can't stop the beat. You've kept us in a state of hypnosis long enough. We need to let our past allegiances die and move boldly into the future with our eyes open. TLDR, if you are a white writer who crafts a story about race and you're not collaborating with a single artist of color, don't pat yourself on the back, don't speak to experiences you have no business speaking to, and don't sell your story out the first chance you get because it will forever seal your fate as an opportunist. I would have been more comfortable with this week's subject if it had simply stopped at racism is lame and called it a day, but to the inclusion of a half-baked, self-important civil rights anthem and this call for colorblind casting has truly sent me into a tailspin from which I refuse to recover. I cannot, I will not. Isn't TLDR supposed to be like a short sentence? Shut up. Let's rank the show, shall we? There's been a few shakeups in the overall ranking, but before I made those changes, I inserted Hairspray into the mix, and I inserted it. It's at number 21 right now. Number 21 right between Rent and Woman of the Year. Now, Woman of the Year, which used to sit at number 23, is now sitting at number 22 right behind Hairspray, and Avita had a huge jump. Avita went from number 26 to number 19, and then we made one more change Caroline or Change, you are back at the number two spot, and you were formerly number four. So congratulations, Caroline or Change. You're, you're fantastic. You're amazing. And I just want to make sure that we can get you up there as high, high, high as we can. When it comes to show-related ephemera, I wasn't able to find anything interesting that related to Hairspray, so I thought we would take this moment to really uh, spend a little bit more time reflecting on the loss that we experienced with the passing of Jerry Herman, and so I'd like to play a little bit of his speech. This is from the 63rd Annual Tony Awards. It's his acceptance speech for the Tony Award for Lifetime Achievement in the Theater. It's his Lifetime Achievement Award, and so I just want, it's a really nice speech. He's, he's very open and honest and very loving, and I think it's just a, it's a really nice thing for us to go out on. So, Patty and Benny, take it away. Thank you, thank you. It just doesn't get any better than this, does it? Did you know that I was born on this street and that my mother thought there was something special about the fact that her hospital window had a great view of the Winter Garden Marquee? <laughs> Well, here I am, 77 years later. <laughs> Still on 50th Street. <laughs> but enjoying the ultimate moment of my life. The journey from Mom's window to this iconic stage has been filled with so much joy and excitement and laughter and lifelong friendships that the only way I know how to say thank you to the hundreds of thousands of people who helped get me here is to say one enormous heartfelt thank you to every soul who has touched my life in the musical theater. The thing I want you to know is that I will hold this moment fast because the best of times is now, is now. <laughs> <laughs>
like a really wonderful guy. Seems like a very genuine person. I, I love all of his shows. I'm not as familiar with some as I am with others, but it is a it's a huge loss. And I actually respect the fact I, I mentioned this very briefly, but he retired after the success of La Cage à Fond, and you know he helped to create some reviews here and there. And I'm sure he was <laughs> bringing in the money, those precious mailbox checks from regional productions of Hello Dolly and Mame all over the place. So I'm sure he was more than comfortable. And I respect the fact that you know I think he thought to himself, I want to go out on a high note. I don't necessarily want to keep grinding my way into oblivion. And he just relaxed. He retired. That's super smart. I love it. So, Jerry, wherever you are, I hope that you're doing well. I like to think that Jerry is just <laughs> bouncing from cloud to cloud with a drink in hand, a martini in hand, and he's just gabbing it up with everybody. So, Jerry, we're looking up at you, baby. Looking up at you, baby. Is it, is it clear? Sorry. Is it clear that I'm an atheist? I am technically an atheist, but I still like to think that, I still like to think that Jerry is in some form of musical theater heaven. <laughs> He's laughing up with Annie and Sandy. That's what he's doing. Mame is there. Dolly's there. All the characters and all the composers. It's fine. I fell for some reason to clarify that I am an atheist. But there there you go. Ooh, have you turned it off at this point? An atheist? No, thank you. Oh, no, thank you. This would normally be the point where we take a ride on the musical carousel and determine what our subject would be for next week. But we have a brand new $10 a month patron, Mark S., and he has earned the right to stop that musical carousel and dictate what show we discuss. That would be the 1986 winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical, which ran for 600 eight performances on Broadway, The Mystery of Edwin Drood. So that's coming to you next week, baby. Yeah. Go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod to find out how you can support the show financially. We have three people that I need to thank just as a cluster. I want to I do a, a hearty helping of thanks to these three people. We have a new $1 a month patron, Shauna. We have a new $3 a month patron, Rob. And we have our $10 a month patron who I just cited, Mark S. That's fantastic. Thank you, Shauna. Rob and Mark. Now, you can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars a month via that website again, patreon.com slash musicalmanpod. Really consider giving a dollar because not only do you get verbal shoutouts, you're going to get a verbal shoutout each and every week. Let's do that now. Mark S., Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, Marisol. Thank you so much again. But you also get, you not you don't just get a verbal shoutout. Come on. You get extra material, bonus podcast material, episodes covering the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the first trailer for the film Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, and a full review of the film Cats. If you donate $3 a month, you get everything I just described, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. We heard that today. We heard from Corny Collins because Shiante wanted to hear from Corny Collins, and you also get access to Wildcats Everywhere, the high school musical podcast, where we are talking about every film in the original franchise. We're talking about High School Musical China, Sharpay's Fabulous Adventure, and then eventually we are going to talk about the Disney Plus series, High School Musical, the musical, the series. What a bad title. $5 a month. Now, if you donate $5 a month, you get everything I've already described, mentioned, but you also get to stop the musical carousel, just like Mark S. did this week, and determine what show I talk about here on the podcast. You also get season one, 12 episodes of an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera himself, 
yourself. That show is called All I Ask of You. And you also get access to our ongoing Broadway in Chicago series, where I'm reviewing all of the shows that are being put up under the banner of Broadway in Chicago here in the Windy City. Finally, if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus The Snub Club, a special monthly series dedicated to Broadway musicals that were never, never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Our season finale is actually dropping on the final Wednesday, January 29th. This month, season finale, it's going to be all about Jesus Christ Superstar. Here are all of the other subjects in this 12-episode season. Amelie, Merrily We Roll Along, Lahuli, American Psycho, Be More Chill, Jekyll and Hyde, Allegiance, It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, The Bridges of Madison County, A Doll's Life, and Aida. Donations, you might be wondering, where do they go? Where does that money go? Well, it goes toward the purchase of cast recordings if I don't already have them in my collection. It helps me to rent movies. It helps me to offset the costs of being hosted through Podbean, our main host. And if we ever get to a point where we are bringing in $100 or more in total donations, I will produce a, a new series, a new series called M3, The Movie Musical Man. And that will be a monthly series for which I'll watch trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. Thank you for listening to the show. If you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please write up a five-star review via Apple Podcasts. We now have 27 five-star reviews. And once we hit 30, once we hit 30, baby, I'm going to do a special episode about Disney's Descendants. Only three reviews away. If you're listening to the show through Apple Podcasts, write that review. And if you have the time, I know it's a pain in the ass, but you can just go through Apple Podcasts, create an account, write that review, (laughs) donate a dollar, or (laughs) create a fake account through Apple Podcasts. Either way, you're helping the show. You're helping the show. Thank you. Stream the show at musicalmanpod.podbean.com. There's that Podbean. And Stitcher and you can follow us on Twitter at MusicalManPod or email me at MusicalManPod at gmail.com. I love having discussions with listeners. I love reading their questions aloud on the air. I just had a wonderful conversation, I think just this past week, with Liz, listener Liz, regarding the film Cats. Yes, that's right. Thanks, as always, to Patty and Benny in the booth, Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and Zach Little for our fabulous music. Ah, Ah, yeah, you just heard it. You know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night. Yeah,